After Sayyidina Ali died, Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan said to Dirar ibn Damra, Describe Ali to me. Dirar said, Will you not excuse me from answering you? Muawiyah said, No, describe him. Dirar continued, Please, excuse me from doing so. Muawiyah said, I will not. So Dirar then sighed and said, Then I will do so. By Allah, Sayyidina Ali was far-sighted and very strong. He spoke with a truthful finality, so that through him the truth became distinguished from falsehood. He ruled justly, and knowledge gushed forth from him, as did wisdom. He felt an aversion to worldliness and its pleasures. He was comfortable with the night and its darkness, for he would stand up and pray voluntary prayers. By Allah, he would cry profusely. Long durations would he spend in contemplation during which time he would converse with his own soul. He showed a liking to coarse garments and lower quality of food. By Allah, it was as if in his humility, he was one of us. When we asked him a question, he would answer us. When we would go to him, he would initiate the greetings of peace and the talk. And when we would invite him to our homes, he would come to us. Yet in spite of his closeness to us, we would not speak freely with him because of the dignity and honor that he exuded. The strong could not hope to gain favors from him through falsehood, and the weak never lost, lost hope in his justice. Welcome everyone to this solo episode, which is episode two of a sub uh, type of category within the solos called Stories of the Awliya, all right, hashtag Soda, or S-O-T-A, Stories of the Awliya, which we hope to bring some stories from the Salihin and the Awliya, as this is a, a big source of Rahmah. And it's a big source of inspiration and to make us realize that we're not alone in the endeavor that we're doing here and far from it. We have plenty of living examples and we're taking various stories. The first one we did was uh, Mu'in actually did it on uh, Abu Madian uh, from Andalusia. And today I'm going to read to you from Sifatul Safwa. So let's take a look at uh, what this book is because this book was authored by uh, and summarized by two giants in the field of, uh, of the intersection between ilm and suluk or tasawwuf or Islamic spirituality. And the first one comes around the 400s of the Hijra is Ahmad ibn Abdullah, also known as Abu Nu'aym al-Isfahani, al-Shafi'i, al-Ash'ari al-Shafi'i. Abu Nu'aym al-Isfahani was a big scholar of hadith. He was a Shafi'i scholar. He was confirmed his hadith was confirmed by the great Khatib al-Baghdadi who was one of the massive scholars who was a Hanbali who became a Shafi'i in Baghdad and al-Khatib al-Baghdadi was a massive uh, scholar of hadith who's written in every discipline uh, related to hadith and why are we talking so much about hadith when we're on stories of the awliya which is very simple the answer is that the stories of the awliya they're only as reliable as their transmission Otherwise, we're just believing in what hagiographies hey, or um, t- myths, really, or uh, folk tales. And we don't want to go that route. You don't want to be someone who b- just relies on folk tales, which I read uh, unauthenticated stories all the time. I just read them. But it's not something we're actually going to pass on as part of our history 
our religious history, our spiritual history. And we need authentication so that our mind can pin down something that our heart may have trouble believing, right? And some of the karamats that we're going to read today are pretty amazing. So, but the key is that once you have a rigorously authenticated transmission about a story like this, right? You can actually believe it firmly and not worry that you're just believing myths and, and am I a rational person? What's going on here? What am I really believing? This is silly. So we don't want to go that route. So we're only taking the stories of the awliya that have been transmitted to us uh, rigorously. And, and if it's not transmitted rigorously, you could read it, right? I mean, I, I read those books, but it's not, I always know that it's more the level of, you know, maybe a, uh, uh, lore almost but in any event the great scholar al-khatib al-baghdadi he's authored works in every sub-discipline of hadith he confirms abu nu'im al-isfahani as one of the greatest scholars of hadith of his time the great and the scrupulous imam al-dhahabi of damascus okay also confirmed abu nu'im al-isfahani's uh, expertise in hadith and that he was rigorous that he was not passing tales subki Taqiyuddin al-Subki also uh, has, has written uh, about Abu Nu'aym al-Isfahani. So about 100 years later, maybe a little more, maybe more like 150 years later, okay, comes another scholar who was really, at his time, he was the son of scholars. He was, at, the, at his time, it's almost like sometimes the qualities and the virtues uh, of the era of the time all gather into one person. And this individual is Abdul Rahman ibn Ali, also known as Ibn al-Jawzi al-Hambali. Right? Imam Ibn al-Jawzi of Baghdad. Okay? Now, some people actually have a misunderstanding of Ibn al-Jawzi, especially those who are inclined towards stories of the awliya. Because Ibn al-Jawzi is oftentimes quoted by people who sort of push back against this for his authorship of a book called Talbis Iblis. Right, the tricks of Iblis or the, uh, the mirages that Iblis creates for people. Ibn al-Jawzi was hardcore in Aqidah. And he was hardcore and he even took himself to the point where uh, he, often, he often criticized the Sufis who were sort of astray. Okay? And uh, he gave them due criticism without necessarily throwing out the entire uh, corpus and idea of Tasawwuf. And in fact, he was a staunch reader and pupil, not directly obviously, of Ibu Hamd al-Ghazali. He came after Abu Hamd al-Ghazali and he was a staunch reader of Imam al-Ghazali's works. And he was a big supporter of those works. He even wrote in the same style of Imam al-Ghazali. He was an Ash'ari in the sense that he wrote, authored works refuting the anthropomorphism inside the Hanbali school and specifically uh, refuted Abu Ya'la for anthropomorphic ideas about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he also refuted those mystics who had some issues with their, uh, with their practice, right? But he, often, he also supported, and he wrote biographies of Maruf al-Qarhi, Rabi al-Adawiyah, Ibrahim ibn Adham. He wrote biographies of them, okay? And he then took, uh, actually we had mentioned Abu Nu'ayman al-Isfahani, but I didn't mention why. Abu Nu'ayman al-Isfahani authored a book called Hilyatul Awliya. And this book is basically a corpus, multi-volume book on biographies of the awliya. 
So he started with the Prophet which is, we don't say the Prophet is Wali, he's Rasul, and he is, uh, beyond that, he is uh, the fountainhead of all the Salihin and the Awliya. But he began with the Prophet with a short seerah. Then he went to the Sahaba, and he divided up the Sahaba based on who entered Islam first. And then he wrote about the Tabi'een again, he divided them up. And then he went to the Tabi'a Tabi'in, and he went to all the way down to uh, a few generations, right, even before his time. And he looked in specific for the stories of their piety. Okay? And these stories, as Abu Hanifa said, are more beloved than fiqh, because stories in stories you see the, the application of the fiqh. In other words, fiqh meaning the understanding of religion in its general sense. You see the application of religion in real life. This is why fiqh is uh, stories, according to Imam Abu Hanifa, to him, is superior to simply reading a ruling because you get to see the application. This is why it's, it's important to have living teachers so that you could see the application of the deen in, in your setting, in your time. So he wrote that book. Ibn al-Jawzi then came and summarized the book. He made it a little easier for people to read. That's what he did. He reworked it and he made it a little easier. Why? Because he wanted to make it as a, as a resource for preachers. Ibn al-Jawzi, he has written about every science of the religion. Even Ibn Taymiyyah says about him, no one has, Imam al-Dhahabi, Ibn Taymiyyah, they said nobody has written more okay, than Ibn al-Jawzi. The two that would come later is Ibn Nawawi wrote a lot and on almost every subject. And a Suyuti, which is way later, Okay, he wrote on every topic as well. But uh, at his time, no one was more prolific, having written over a thousand works than Ibn al-Jawzi. He was a writer. He was a preacher. So this is why he was interested in, in summarizing this book so that preachers could use it and, and have stories on hand okay, to tell the people at Jumu'ah or in Wa'ad after Aisha or whenever they're given talks okay, or for youth and children. Right, to read and know their religion and know the people of their religion. So he was an amazing preacher where the halls would be packed to hear his talks. He was also a, an administrator. He administered nearly a dozen colleges at his time. Okay? He was the head of these colleges. He was also highly political in the sense that he was involved with the Khalifas. The 33rd Abbasid Khalifa al-Mu'tamid He's the one who took on the Hanbali Madhab as the official Madhab. And so he elevated Ibn al-Jawzi. Ibn al-Jawzi was then uh, uh, extremely influential. Probably the single most influential scholar that you could think of having access to the people through his preaching skills, the scholars through his written works. He was considered the most educated in his time. His parents poured money into the education of Ibn al-Jawzi, okay? Uh, he was considered that, you know, he was the top of his class. And he had access to the rulers through his positions, and he had access, uh, his position as the chief mufti, and he had access to the future generation of scholars and the youth as his position on, uh, of the rector of over a dozen colleges, Okay, so Ibn al-Jawzi is not just a figure in Islamic history. He is a mammoth size, a behemoth. He's huge. Okay, Abdurrahman Ibn al-Jawzi. And he has an amazing number of books that are some, some, sometimes he made these books really easy to read. Well, Sifat al-Safwa is one of them. So I'm going to the masjid one day 
And unfortunately, some people, they have this habit to use the masjid as a dumping grounds. They clean out their house, they're moving, what have you. You walk in on an average day for Salat al-Dhuhr or something, and, and lo and behold, there's a pile of people's rubbish. And I don't want to say like this. There are Dini-related stuff that they don't want, and what do they do? They go and dump it uh, in the masjid. It's a horrible practice, which I despise, and I actually... I ask uh, the security to actually pull up the footage so I can find this person, right, and give it back to him. Because what are we going to do with it at the masjid? We end up having to burn it. We burned so many books one time that the fire department came in, right, and, and said what's going on. They, they thought there was a fire, okay. Uh, neighbors reported a, a smoke and a smell. Uh, so we can't really burn them anymore because the, uh, the fire department thinks it's actual fire. We could put it in water, bury them. So it's such a bad habit. But in any event, I'm looking at the table with all this pile of people's stuff. And I find this little booklet here, Glimpses of the Lives of Righteous People. Right. And I look at it and it's a couple selections from Sifat al-Safwa. If anyone wants to do a good deed and you know Arabic and you can translate, go into Sifat al-Safwa. The PDF is online. Right. Go into Sifat al-Safwa and just pick out Good little stories, one page, half a page, two pages, right? And translate them and put them together in a in a hundred pages, or this one's like 145 pages, right? You'll be, I mean, it's great for youth, right? Some of the youth, they just read through the book, they zipped through, they loved it, right? In any event, let's actually get to the stories. The first chapter is, uh, or the first story is Al-Miski, the one who exuded a good odor. So this is one of the Salihin who exuded a type of uh, a good odor is not a good translation because an odor tends to be bad in itself a good sense all right it is reported that abu bakr al-miski this was his nickname and miski having a scent of musk was once asked we always find a good odor emanating from you why or how he answered by allah for years now i have not used any perfume but the reason for the good smell has to do with an ordeal that I passed through. A woman once tricked me into entering her home. Then she closed and locked the door behind her, after which she began to seduce me. I became utterly bewildered as to what, what I should do, for I had no options before me. I said to her, I need to go and purify myself. She ordered her servant to take me to the bathroom, and when I entered it, I took feces in my hand, like he went to the bathroom, took feces in my hand and wiped it all over my body. Then I returned to her in that state. Shocked to see me like that, the woman ordered me to be removed from her home. I left immediately and took a shower. That very night I saw a dream. In it, it was said to me, you have done that which no one else has ever done. I will make your smell good and pure in this world and in the hereafter. When I woke up, the smell of perfume was emanating from my body, and it has continued to emanate from my body until this very moment. Again, just as a reminder, all of the ones that we're reading here have come down with sound chains of transmission and are from the stories of the, uh, the awliya and the karamats that become prohibited to say that they were a lie becomes prohibited since the it, it, that would essentially be saying that those transmitters are liars the next story taking forgiveness to the next level one day when Jafar al-Sadiq wanted to perform ablution 
he asked his slave to pour water on his hands from a jug. As the slave began to pour water out, out of the jug, some of it splashed onto Jafar's garment and spilled onto him, which resulted in Jafar giving his slave a reproachful look. Fearing punishment, the servant cited the Quran saying, and those who repress their anger. Jafar reassuringly said to him, I have repressed my anger. Then the servant said, and those who pardon men, pardon the people. Jafar said, I have indeed pardoned you. The servant continued, Verily, Allah loves those who do good. Jafar then looked at him and said, I will do good. You are free for the sake of Allah, and you may take from my wealth 1,000 dinars. Next story, the fear of Allah Azza wa Jal. A righteous man said, I once sat in the gathering of a preacher who spoke so well and with such eloquence that he moved everyone that was present into tears. Upon hearing the preacher mention the hellfire and the punishment that Allah Ta'ala prepared for those who disobey him, a young man who was present let out a loud cry. Alas, my grief that I was undutiful to Allah, I have wasted my life, forgotten death, and done little in terms of good deeds. He then faced the Qibla and said, O oh Allah, I turn towards you this day, and at this moment, repenting to you with the repentance that is not tainted by a desire for anyone other than you, to see me worshipping you. So accept, in spite of my shortcomings, this repentance. Forgive me and have mercy on me in my loneliness. My Lord, to you do I return with all my limbs, sincerely from my heart. Utter ruin will be my lot if you do not accept me. He then fell down unconscious. We tried to move him, but he wouldn't budge. He was dead. May Allah have mercy on him. The next story says, It was a dark night on which the burglar scaled the wall of Malik ibn Dinar's house and stealthily made his way inside. To his utter disappointment, the thief found nothing in the house that was worth stealing. What's more, the occupant of the house was actually inside and busy praying. Malik ibn Dinar sensed the movement of the burglar, but without becoming alarmed, he turned around with perfect composure and extended greetings of peace to him. He then said, My brother, may Allah forgive you. You entered my home and found nothing worth taking, but I will not allow you to leave without gaining some benefit. Malik stood up, approached the burglar with a jug of water in his hand, and said, Here, perform the ablution. Perform two units of prayer. If you do so, you will take away that which is better than what you came to find in the first place. How generous of you, said the burglar, somewhat stupefied at not being scolded. And more than anything else, he was humbled. He stood, made ablution, and performed two units of prayer. Upon completing them, he turned and said, O Madik, will I be imposing upon you if I perform two more rakahs of prayer? Perform as much as Allah decrees for you, Madik said. The burglar turned worshiper continued to pray until the morning, at which time Madik said, Go and be good. Will I be imposing upon you, said the burglar, if I stay here with you today, for I have made the intention to fast today. Stay as long as you wish, said Madik. So the man stayed with Madik for a number of days, spending the days fasting and the night standing up for prayer, his heart having completely transformed. 
Finally deciding to leave, the man said, O Malik, I have made my mind up to repent completely. That, i.e. Allah forgiving you and guiding you to repentance, this is in the hands of Allah Azzawajal, said Malik. And in fact, the man did mend his ways and repent for his previous wayward existence. When the man left Maddox's home, he came across another burglar he knew. Seeing the happy and serene expression on the man's face, the burglar said, I think that you have finally found your treasure. My brother, he answered, I found Maddox ibn Dinar. I went to steal from him, but it was he who stole something of mine, my heart. Indeed, I have repented to Allah Ta'ala and I will remain at the door of his mercy and forgiveness until I achieve what his obedient, loving slaves have achieved. Sound advice from Umar ibn al-Khattab. Umar radiallahu anhu said, Take account of your own selves, i.e. your deeds, before you will be taken to account on the day of resurrection. Weigh yourselves before you will be weighed. Verily, if you hold yourselves accountable today, the accountability tomorrow, on the day of judgment, will be easier upon you. And adorn yourselves for the greater display, which is the judgment. And he recited Allah's verse, يَوْمَ إِذِنْ لَا تَخْفَى مِنْكُمْ That day shall you be brought to the judgment, not a secret of yours will ever be hidden. And Umar once said to Al-Ahnaf ibn Qais, O Ahnaf, the more one laughs, the less dignity will he possess. Whoever jokes excessively or indecently is a person who will be taken lightly. Whoever does something frequently will become known by that thing. Whoever speaks often, errs often. And the more one errs, the less modesty will he possess. Whoever has a low level of modesty will also have a low level of piety. And one, when one has a low level of piety, then his heart dies. When advising another man, Umar radiallahu anhu said, Do not speak about that which does not concern you. Know your enemy and be wary of your friend, except for the trustworthy one. And no one is trustworthy except for the person who fears Allah azza wa jal. Do not walk with the evildoer, lest he teaches you some of his wickedness. And do not reveal your secrets to him. And when you consult others in your affairs, consult only those who fear Allah Ta'ala. Umar's fear of Allah. Abdullah ibn Amr narrated that Umar ibn al-Khattab picked up a piece of straw from the ground and said, Would that I were this piece of straw. Would that I had never been created. Would that my mother never gave birth to me. Would that I, I didn't even exist. Would that I were non-existent forgotten thing. Umar did not say these words out of ungratefulness. Rather, he said them because of his prodigious fear of Allah's judgment and his punishment. Sayyidina Ali was asked, Why does everyone fear Umar? He replied, Because Umar fears Allah. Repentance One day, Iban ibn Salih left the company of Anas ibn Malik عنه, and began to walk in the marketplace when suddenly four men carrying a beer with a corpse on it passed by. Iban then exclaimed, Strange indeed, the marketplaces of Basra are filled with people, yet only four people are following this funeral. I will make them five. Before he reached the graveyard, and it, when, it, when it was time to pray over the deceased, Iban asked the others, Who among you is the guardian or relative 
of the deceased so that he can lead the funeral prayer. The others answered in unison, In terms of closeness to the deceased, we are all equal. So you, Iban, lead the prayer. They prayed over the deceased, finished their march to the graveyard, and buried the corpse. When all was said and done, Iban said, I ask you by Allah, tell me the truth about this dead person we just buried. They said, None of us knows the story of this dead person. We are simply workers. A woman paid us to carry the corpse and bury it. Iban turned around and saw a woman approaching the grave they had just dug. She sat over the grave a while and then stood up, laughing. After going to her, Iban said, By Allah, this is strange indeed. A woman laughing over the grave of her deceased? Why are you prying into that which does not concern you? The woman said. Inform me about what happened, Iban insisted. The woman said, Indeed, or he, he continued, Indeed, I am Iban, the servant of Anas bin Malik, who was the servant of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So tell me. She then spoke, Had it not been for the fact that you are who you are, O Iban, I would never have told you my story. The deceased in this grave is my son. He was a reckless person who did wrong to his own self. Last night he became very sick, and so he called, he called me to him. When I went to him, he requested as a dying man that I follow all of his instructions. I told him to say anything and that I would comply with his wishes. He told me not to inform anyone about his death. He then said, when they place me into the grave, raise your hands to Allah and invoke him to forgive me. And say, oh my Lord, I am indeed pleased with my son. So you too be pleased with him. O oh, my mother, stand up now, place your foot on my face, and say, This is the reward of one who disobeys Allah Azza wa Jal. I did as he asked, and placed my foot on his face. And by the time I lifted my foot off his face, he was dead. I then hired these four men to wash the corpse, enshroud it, carry it to its grave, and then bury it. When they walked away, I approached the grave, raised my hands, and said, O oh, merciful of the merciful, O oh, most merciful of the merciful, O most generous of the generous, you indeed know our secret and our open realities. Indeed, you know what is apparent and what is hidden. Indeed, my sinning, erring son invoked you by dint of his poor, humble mother being pleased with him. Indeed, I am pleased with my son, so you too be pleased with him. I then heard a voice from inside the grave say to me, Go, mother, for I have returned to the most generous Lord who has indeed forgiven my sins. And this is what made me laugh and walk away in such a happy state. A few glimpses into the life of Ali ibn Abi Talib. During Ali's caliphate, Ibn Tayyah once came to him and said, O leader of the believers, a Muslim treasury is filled with gold and silver. Allahu Akbar was Ali's reply. He then ordered Ibn, ibn Tayyah to gather the people of Kufa. When everyone was present, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu began distributing the wealth, all the while saying, O yellow, meaning the gold, and O, o white, meaning the silver, deceive someone other than me. When all was said and done, Sayyidina Ali had finished distributing all of the wealth that was in the treasury. He radiallahu anhu then ordered for the inside of the treasury to be cleaned. And after this task was performed, he entered inside the treasury and performed two rakahs of prayer. After Sayyidina Ali died, Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan said to Dirar ibn Damra, Describe Ali to me. Dirar said, Will you not excuse me from answering you? 
Muawiyah said, no, describe him. Dirar continued, please excuse me from doing so. Muawiyah said, I will not. So Dirar then sighed and said, then I will do so. By Allah, Sayyidina Ali was far-sighted and very strong. He spoke with a truthful finality, so that through him the truth became distinguished from falsehood. He ruled justly, and knowledge gushed, gushed forth from him, as did wisdom. He felt an aversion to worldliness and its pleasures. He was comfortable with the night and its darkness, for he would stand up and pray voluntary prayers. By Allah, he would cry profusely. Long durations would he spend in contemplation, during which time he would converse with his own soul. He showed a liking to coarse garments and lower quality of food. By Allah, it was as if, in his humility, he was one of us. When we asked him a question, he would answer us. When we would go to him, he would initiate the greetings of peace and the talk. And when we would invite him to our homes, he would come to us. Yet in spite of his closeness to us, we would not speak freely with him because of the dignity and honor that he exuded. If he smiled, he revealed the likes of straight white teeth like pearls. He honored religious people and loved the poor. The strong could not hope to gain favors from him through falsehood, and the weak never lost, lost hope in his justice. I swear by Allah that on certain occasions I saw him in his place of prayer when the night was dark and few stars could be seen. He would be holding his beard and crying the way a very sad person cries. I would hear him saying, O world, O world, are you offering yourself to me? Do you desire me? Never deceive someone other than me. I have divorced you with a three times divorce so that you can never return to me. O dunya, your life is short. The existence you offer is base and your danger is great. Alas, for the paucity of the sustenance, i.e. the good deeds, the great distance of the journey, and the loneliness of the road. Upon hearing this description, Muawiyah's eyes swelled with tears, and not being able to hold them from gushing forth, he was forced to wipe them with his sleeve. And the same can be said for those who were present. Muawiyah radiallahu anhu then said, May Allah have mercy on the father of Al-Hasan, for he was by Allah just as you described him to be. He then said, O Dirar, describe your sadness at having lost him. My sadness, began Dirar, is like the sadness of a woman who cannot control her tears or allay her grief after her child, while in her lap, has just been slaughtered. He stood up and left. Two of Ali's sermons. It is reported that Ali said, the two things I fear most in terms of sins are following desires and having long-term expectations of this world. As for the former, it blocks one from the truth, and as for the latter, it causes one to forget the hereafter. Lo, the world is traveling away from us, and the hereafter is traveling towards us. Each of the, each of the two has children, so be from the children of the hereafter and not from the children of the dunya. For indeed, today is action without accountability, and tomorrow is accountability without action. One day, after Ali ibn Abi Talib followed a funeral procession, and after the corpse was placed in its grave, the family of the deceased began to weep in loud voices. Ali said to them, What are you crying over? He radiallahu anhu then said, 
words to the effect of, Like the deceased you are crying over, death will come upon you all too, one by one, until none among you remains. He radiallahu anhu then stood and said, O slaves of Allah, I advise you to fear Allah, who has set forth parables for you and has decreed precise times for your deaths. He has given you ears so that you can absorb their meanings, sight to remove anything that prevents vision, and a heart so that you can understand. Indeed, Allah has not created you without purpose. Allah has bestowed upon you abundant blessings and has prepared for you rewards, so fear Allah. O slaves of Allah, strive hard to achieve lawful sustenance and do good deeds before the destroyer of pleasure comes to you, which is death. Indeed, the blessings of this world will never last, and no one is safe from its trials and tribulations. The pleasures of this world are all deceptions that impede you from remembering Allah. Take heed from these clear lessons, O slaves of Allah. Let the warnings of punishment prevent you from sinning and benefit from sincere advice and sermons that you hear. It is as if the claws of death already have a firm hold upon you. You are guaranteed a house of dirt, the grave. Then you will face terrifying events when the trumpet is blown, when the graves are turned over, when you will be steered toward the gathering place for the judgment, and when you will be standing for accountability. All of this is under the full control of the Almighty. Each soul will have someone steering it towards the gathering place for judgment, and each soul has a witness that will give testimony for it or against it. And he recited, وَأَشْرَقَتِ الْأَرْضُ بِنُورِ رَبِّهَا وَوُضِعَ الْكِتَابُ وَجِيءَ بِالنَّبِيِّينَ وَالشُّهَدَاءِ وَقُضِيَ بَيْنَهُمْ بِالْحَقِّ وَهُمْ لَا يُظْلَمُونَ And the earth will shine with the light of its Lord and the book will be placed open and the prophets and the witnesses will be brought forward and it will be judged between them with truth and they will not be wronged. The lands will shake, the caller will call out, the beasts will be resurrected, secrets will be revealed, hearts will quake, the hellfire, whose fire will be blazing, will come into sight. O slaves of Allah, fear Allah with the fear of a person who is truly afraid, who is truly cautious, who truly sees impending doom, and who is truly deterred from sinning. For such a person strives hard, is saved by fleeing from sins, prepares for the return to the resurrection, and seeks help through the acquirement of provisions, which is good deeds. Sufficient indeed is the book, the Qur'an, as an advocate. Sufficient indeed is paradise as a reward. And sufficient indeed is the hellfire in terms of its destruction for those who enter it and its punishment. And I ask Allah to forgive me and to forgive you. A glimpse into the life of Abdullah bin Jahsh. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas reported that Abdullah bin Jahsh said to him on the day of Uhud, Verily, let us invoke Allah. The two of them isolated themselves to one side, and Abdullah bin Jahsh made a dua. O Lord, when I meet the enemy tomorrow, let me face a strong, valiant, and able man, whom I will then fight for you. He will then fight and kill me, after which he will cut off my nose and ear, so that when I meet you tomorrow, you say, O slave, who cut off your nose and your ear? I will then say, For your sake and for your messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I fought and my nose and ear were cut off. Then you will say, you have spoken the truth. Sa'ad later recounted, I saw him at the end of the day 
Both his ear and his nose were hanging from a thread. According to another narration, Abdullah bin Jahsh invoked Allah with the following words, O Allah, I swear by you that I will meet the enemy tomorrow, that they will kill me and they will cut open my stomach and that they will cut, open my, cut off my nose and ear and that you will then ask me, why did this happen to you? And I will say, fighting for you and for your messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Commenting on this oath, the second generation Muslim, Sa'id ibn, ibn Musayyib, said, I indeed hope that just as Allah has fulfilled for him the first part of his oath, that he will also fulfill the second part of it. When the Prophet told him to go back, he cried. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas said, Just as the Prophet was looking us over before he went into the battle of Badr, I saw my brother, Umayr ibn Abi Waqqas, hiding among the crowd of people. I said, My brother, why are you hiding? He said, I fear that the Messenger of Allah will send me back, deeming me to be too young. But I really want to go out so that Allah perhaps will bestow upon me shahada, martyrdom. In the end, Umair was presented to the Messenger وسلم, who just as he had feared, the Prophet deemed him to be too young and said, go back. Umair began to cry and cry and cry until the Messenger وسلم, gave him permission to go out and he was 16 years old. He was killed on that day and made into a martyr by the permission of Allah. May Allah have mercy upon him. The Disease and the Cure Muhammad ibn Samak narrates, I would frequently seek out the company of worshippers and men who, showing an aversion for worldly pleasures, dedicated their lives to the hereafter. Having been told about such a man in Abbadan, an area that is in present-day Iran, I traveled to meet him. When I arrived in Abbadan, I inquired about his home, and once directed to it, I went and knocked on its front door. A servant opened the door and asked, What is your business? I said, I'm looking for the house of so-and-so. She said, You have found it. And what is your need? I said, I want to ask him whether I may enter and meet him. He continued, Once inside, I saw a man who had dug a grave in the floor of his home. His hands and legs were inside of it, and he was reciting the verse, أَمْ حَسِبَ الَّذِينَ جَتَرَحُوا السَّيَّآتِ أَنْ نَجَعَلَهُمْ كَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ do those who did evil deeds with their limbs think that we shall hold them and make them equal with those who believed and did righteous deeds, both in this life and after their death, a bad judgment they make? I extended my greetings of peace, and he responded in the like manner and said, What is your name? I said, Muhammad. He said, Muhammad, son of who? He, I said, son of Asamek. He said, perhaps you are the famous preacher? I said, yes. He said, to me, a preacher is just like a doctor. And I have a sickness that other doctors have not been able to cure. Perhaps through your gentleness, you will succeed where they have failed. And perhaps you have some ointment, so to speak, that will have a potent effect on my ailment. Do you not know, I began, that after this abode... There are only two abodes, paradise and hell. The expression on the man's face immediately took on a look of solemnity. And so I continued. My brother, life is turning away and weakness is taking charge. 
Indeed, your two scribes, the angels on your shoulders, have recorded against you all of the evil deeds you perpetrated in the past. And perhaps death will overtake you before you are able to do something worthy of hope. When he heard these last words of mine, he began to sob and then passed out. From behind a curtain, his wife and daughter rushed out, and both of them were crying as well. After a long time passed, he finally regained his consciousness and said, O son of Samek, your remedy is just right for my ailment, so give me more. I said, My brother, we are certain about our past sins, yet doubtful about whether our repentance will be accepted. If he rules with a judgment befitting what, we des what you deserve, then where will you go to hide from your punishment? He let out a loud scream and fell down, unconscious for a second time. Again, it was a long time before he regained consciousness. But when he did, he said, I bear witness that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah alone. La sharika la, he has no partner, and that Muhammad is a slave and messenger. Then he became still again, and after I tried to move his body in order to revive him, I realized that he had just died. We want what we want, but Allah brings about only that which he wills. One of the former kings of the children of Israel, Bani Israel, had a number of sons. Whenever one of his sons would reach the age of manhood, he would attire himself in coarse clothing, join the worshippers who live in mountains, and continue to worship Allah until death overtook him. The king did not prevent his sons from going. He recognized that it was Allah who guided them to the truth and that he himself could do nothing to change their hearts. But the king had a change of mind when in his old age he had one last son. Having gathered his ministers and close advisors for a meeting, the king said, I indeed love this son more than I do any of the others. I feel that death is approaching me, and I fear that if he joins his brothers, those from outside of the family will then take over our kingdom. So take him while he was yet small and instill in him a love for this world and its pleasures. Perhaps then he will want to be your king after I die. The king's advisors immediately came up with a plan and put it into action. They, choose a they chose a huge chunk of land and enclosed it with a wall. Inside this wall, they surrounded the child with all of the luxuries that life that they could, of life that they could gather. He lived within the bounds of the four walls until he became a man. Then one day, he looked around and said, I deem there to be another world on the other side of this wall. Take me out of here so that I can increase in knowledge and certainty. There is nothing other than what you see here, said the guardians. He didn't argue. Instead, he continued to live there for about another year. Nonetheless, he spent a lot of his time riding his horse along the inside of the walls. He then repeated the same request as his curiosity kept increasing about what is outside those walls. And this time he was stronger than the previous year. I deem there to be another world on the outside of these walls. Take me out of here so I can increase in knowledge and in certainty. His guardians gave him the same reply that they gave him the previous year, but this time the young man was adamant and said, I must go. His guardians could hold him back no longer, yet they could not simply allow him to leave. And so they took the matter to the king. The king said to them, take him out, for we want what we want, but Allah brings about only what he wills. They returned to the to the king's son and opened the gate of the sanctuary for him. For the very first time in his life, he stepped outside and had a look at the world. Yet he was not totally free of constraints, 
for the king's advisors went where he went and supervised his every move. Though the king's son had become a man, he knew nothing of the world, save for the closed and limited life of luxury he led since he was a child. Thus the king's advisors felt it necessary to accompany him and observe his reaction to what he was about to learn from the world. After all, they still nurtured hopes of him becoming their king. While they were walking, they came across a man who was clearly afflicted with a serious illness. What is the matter with him? The young prince asked. He is afflicted with a serious illness, they said. Does every person become afflicted with this sickness? Asked the naive prince, or do some people become afflicted with it only? It afflicts only a group of people, those upon whom Allah has decreed it. Oh, said the young prince, so those people know that it is coming and then they prepare for it? Or is there no prior warning so that everyone is afraid of being afflicted? Actually, the advisor said, everyone is afraid of being afflicted by sickness. Nobody knows upon whom it will fall and upon whom it won't. Even I, with all the control I have as a prince? Even you, they answered. Therefore, this life of yours is tainted and not pure, said the prince. They continued to walk until they came across a man who was old, decrepit, and frail. Since he had no control whatsoever of his bodily functions, he drooled inadvertently so that saliva flowed down onto his chest. Never having seen an old person before, the young prince asked, What is this? A man who is so advanced in his years that he has become decrepit, they said. Does this afflict only some people? Or is every person afraid that if he reaches old age, he will be afflicted with the same frailty that this man is now afflicted with? Actually, they said, everyone is afraid of this possibility, they answered. Therefore, this life is tainted and not pure, said the young prince. They continued traveling through the earth until they passed by a corpse for the first time, being carried by a number of men. What is this? asked the prince, to whom the concept of death was completely foreign. This is a man who has died, they answered. Ask him to sit up, said the prince. He cannot sit, they said. He's dead. Then ask him to speak. They again answered, he cannot speak. He is dead. This is the meaning of death. Does this condition afflict only certain people? The prince asked, or is everyone afraid that this will befall them too? This is the end of every person, including both those who fear it and those who do not fear it, they said. Is this what you were hiding me, hiding from me and protecting me from? The prince asked. No person can flee from this ending, and no person, no matter what the abilities are that he is endowed with, can ward it off. Had I not left to see the world, the prince said, I would have died suddenly, not knowing what was happening to me, said the prince, expressing some upsetness at being deceived for such a long time. Verily, you have no control over me after this day. He tried to bolt from their company and run away, but they were too many, and soon they had him surrounded. We will not leave you until you go to your father first, they said. When they met with the king, they recounted to him everything that had happened with the prince. Did I not tell you, said the king resigningly, we want what we want, but Allah brings about only that which he wills. Let him go, for you can no longer hold any sway over him. What did your Lord do with you? 
Abu Bakr al-Saydalani reported that he heard Salim ibn Mansur ibn Amr say, Upon seeing my father in a dream, I asked him, What did your Lord do with you? He answered, Indeed, my Lord drew me near and close. And he said to me, O evil old man, do you know why I forgave you? I said, No, my Lord. He said, You sat before people in a gathering one day and you made them cry for their sins. Among them was one of my slaves who had never before cried out of fear of me. And so I forgave him and I forgave everyone else in the gathering for his behalf. And you were among them, so I forgave you as well. The women of this world versus the women of paradise. It is related that as he was walking through the streets of Basra, Malik ibn Dinar heard a noise behind him. Turning around in order to see the source of this noise, Malik caught sight of a female slave that belonged to the king. She had a beautiful face and a wonderful figure. From head to toe, she was a paragon of beauty. Malik called out, O young servant, will your master sell you? She, she laughed and said, And can one such as you purchase me even if he were to sell me though she was a slave she was honored for she belonged not to a common man but to the king that is why the other servants of the king took serious offense to Maddox's proposition he was after all an old man who looked and in fact was very poor they surrounded Maddox and would have probably harmed him yet the beautiful slave girl was in such a good mood having been inwardly amused by Maddox's offer and she said don't harm him Madik replied, well, let me accompany you all. They agreed. He went with the company of the slaves until they reached the castle of the king, to which Madik did not receive immediate admittance. Instead, he was forced to wait outside for a while. Meanwhile, the beautiful slave went to her master, the king, and said, O oh, master of mine, let me tell you something strange indeed. What is it? O oh, beautiful one, said the king. My master, an old poor man who was wearing a ragged garment, saw me and liked me and he said will your master sell you the king laughed he said where is this man she said he has come with me and is waiting at the gate of the castle bring him over said the king looking for some amusement when malik entered he remained standing at the door of the king's hall the king who was seated on an elevated throne said enter old man i will not enter said malik until you remove this carpet i will neither look at it nor walk on any part of it the king, normally a confident man, suddenly felt humble and meek before Allah, for Allah had instilled into his heart a sense of awe for Madik. By the king's order, the carpet was removed from his hall. Now sit in any way that pleases you, said the king. No, said Madik. I will not sit until you descend from your throne and sit down on the floor with me. To the others that were present, this probably seemed to be a serious insult to the king, but not so to the king himself who humbly descended from his throne and sat down on the floor before Madik. What is it that you want, old man? asked the king in a courteous manner. Your female slave, he said, that has just entered. Will you sell her to me? Madik said. And do you have enough to purchase her from me? said the king. What is her price? asked Madik. Because of her many good qualities, not least of which is her appearance, she is worth thousands of golden coins 
By Allah, to me, she is not worth more than two silver coins, said Madik. This made both the king and the female slave who was listening from behind a curtain laugh. Everyone else present also laughed at Madik's words. Why are all you laughing? Madik asked. And why do you deem her to be of such low value? Asked the king. Because of her many flaws, said Madik. And who told you about these flaws? Asked the king. I know a number of her flaws that you are not even aware of, said Madik. The king was astonished and said, Then what are they? If she does not use perfume, Madik said, she exudes a bad odor. If she does not use a miswak, toothstick, then her mouth exudes a foul odor. If she does not take a shower, she becomes dirty. If she does not comb her hair, she becomes disheveled and lice infested. If she continues to live, she will soon become old, frail and decrepit. Her body is filled with phlegm, mucus, urine, feces, and impure blood of menstruation. In short, she is replete with defects. Furthermore, she might want you only for your own benefit and love you only for her own pleasure. She will not always be loyal to you, nor is her love true for you, because if someone takes your place as king, she will then think of him as she thinks of you right now. Or in other words, she will forget you completely. But I know of a woman who costs less but is worth more. Madik then went on to describe that woman. If mixed with salty water, her spit will make the water fresh and sweet. If a dead person is invited by her speech, he will answer her. If her shirt is put beside the sun, the sun will seem to be a dark object. If her sweat falls onto the earth, it will be like perfume on it. She is sweet-smelling with beautiful eyes, a flirtatious nature, for her male companion only. And she passionately loves her male companion. Her beauty, her beauty never changes. She never becomes old. She is never unfaithful, and her love is everlasting. O oh, deceived one, which of the two is more worthy of being raised in status? The king said, By Allah, the one that you just described. Well, what is her price? May Allah have mercy on you. Very little indeed, Madik said. It is, you, it is for you to spend an hour at night to stand and sincerely perform two rakahs of prayer to your Lord. For you to take some of your own food and prefer, instead of satisfying your own desires, a poor person for the sake of Allah. For you to pick up harmful objects from the road. For you to pass your days with a basic amount of sustenance. For you to raise your sights above a life of heedlessness so that you live in this world contented, knowing that you are about to leave it. Thus you will achieve safety on the day of resurrection. O female slave, called out the king. Here I am, my master, she said. Did you hear what this man said? Yes, she answered. Is he speaking the truth or falsehood? By Allah, he is telling the truth, she said. The king said, If that is the case, then I set you free for the sake of Allah. Furthermore, everything in this palace will be distributed in charity to the poor and needy. Having given away most of his possessions, the king put on a simple garment and vowed to lead a simple life, one that is dedicated to the worship of Allah. As he was leaving the castle, the woman had, who had been his slave, but was now a free woman, called out, O oh master, I cannot live without you. She too took on a simple garment and followed after him. Malik bade farewell to them, invoked Allah to guide them, and then went on his own way. The narrator of this story mentioned then that the king and his former slave wed and became married, both dedicating their lives to the worship of Allah together until they died. 
May Allah have mercy on them. This is the purity of heart of those kings before, that they would change their lives on the words of one righteous man. Temptation. It is related that a group of people were once seated in the company of Hassan al-Basri, when some men passed by, dragging along with them the body of a dead man. When al-Hassan saw the dead man, a glint of instant recognition could be discerned in his eyes, and he fell unconscious from the shock of some memory that had just been rekindled. When he regained consciousness, his companions asked him what was wrong with him. He said, this man, referring to the dead man being dragged along on the ground, used to be one of the best worshippers and one of the most renowned ascetics. One day, he left his home intending to go to the masjid to pray. But on the way, he saw a young Christian woman who became an immediate temptation to him. When he proposed to her, she refused, saying, I will not marry you until you become a Christian. He went on his way. But as time went on, his yearning for her continued to increase. He then succumbed to her wish and slowly, little by little, left the fold of Islam in order to please her. After he became a Christian and proposed to her, she replied to him, You are in fact a man bereft of goodness. You have forsaken your religion, which was, which was the most important matter to your entire life, simply for the sake of lust that has no value. Meanwhile, I too am forsaking my religion, but, but not for the same reason. I am doing so having discovered that Allah is one the self-sufficient master who has no father and has no son. She then recited, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ اللَّهُ الصَّمَدُ لَمْ يَلِدُ وَلَمْ يُولَدُ وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدُ When people heard about what she said, they approached her and asked, All along you had this chapter memorized? No, she answered. By Allah, I had never known it before. But after this man insisted to continue marrying me, I saw a dream. I saw the hellfire, and I saw my place in it shown to me. I became terrified and panic-stricken. Malik, the custodian of the hellfire, said to me, Do not be afraid or sad, for Allah has ransomed you and saved you and replaced this man with you, i.e. replaced the man who has left his religion with you who will enter this religion. He then took me by the hand and admitted me into paradise. Seeing a line written inside of it, I read it, and it was written, Allah blots out what he wills and confirms what he wills. The man then, Malik, custodian of hell, recited the Ikhlas chapter to me, and I began to repeat it over and over and over until I woke up and had it memorized. And Hassan al-Basri then said, The woman embraced Islam, and the man whose corpse you just saw being dragged away was killed for having apostatized. And I ask Allah to make us firm and steadfast on his religion. The Warning of White Hair Iyas ibn Qatada al-Tamimi was the leader of his people. One day, Iyas saw something simple yet profoundly terrifying. What he saw was a white hair in his beard. And what he was reminded of was his imminent death. He immediately said, O oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from sudden calamity. I realize that death is chasing me and I cannot escape it. 
He asked and went out to his people and made this announcement. O, Be o people of Beni Tamim, I have dedicated my youth to your service. And in return, I ask you to leave me alone in my old age. I do not want to be like a donkey who takes care of errands all day long while death is approaching. He removed his turban and abdicated his leadership. For the rest of his life, Iyas removed himself completely from public service. He never again mixed in the company of rulers, but that is not to say that he stopped being a contributing member of the community. To the contrary, he became the Mu'addin of the mosque. Whomsoever Allah guides, none can lead astray. Al-Asma'i gave an account of how he once went to the desert in order to teach Bedouins the Qur'an. While he was out there, a Bedouin approached with a sword in his hand, and it quickly became clear to Al-Asma'i that he was a highway robber. As he made a move to remove and seal the very garment Al-Asma'i was wearing on his back, he said, O city dweller, what has brought you here to the desert? I came here to teach the Qur'an, Al-Asma'i replied. And what is the Qur'an? asked the Bedouin. Aroused with curiosity, he stopped short in his tracks. It is Allah's speech, Al-Asma'i replied. And does Allah have speech? Al-Asma'i replied, why yes. Then recite a verse of it to me, he, the man requested. Al-Asma'i then proceeded to recite this verse. And in the heavens is your provisions. And that's that which you are promised. The simplicity of the Bedouin mind, depending on the situation, can be a boon or a harmful thing. In this case, it served to make him appreciate something that is supposed to be understood in a simple way. Though people tend to complicate matters in their minds. The Bedouin threw down his sword and said, I ask Allah for forgiveness. My provision is in the heavens, i.e. Allah has decreed it with what provision every created being is going to have. Yet I am seeking it here on earth through unlawful means. Or in other words, why should I seek out sustenance through unlawful means when what I am going to get is guaranteed for me through Allah's divine ordainment? Through the guidance of Allah, the Bedouin underwent a change that was at once complete and immediate. Al-Asma'i was happy to catch sight of the Bedouin during the Hajj of the following year. It was the Bedouin who approached Al-Asma'i and said, Am I not your companion of yesterday? Yes, indeed, Al-Asma'i answered. Let me hear another verse from you, the Bedouin asked. And Al-Asma'i recited, Then by the Lord of the heavens and the earth, it is the truth, i.e. that which has been promised to you, just as it is the truth that you can speak. The Bedouin began to cry, and all of a sudden, right before Al-Asma'i's eyes, he fell to the ground and died. Al-Asma'i had the honor of witnessing the moment in which this Bedouin became guided to the truth and the moment in which he died while performing an act of worship, the Hajj. May Allah have mercy on him. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr illa al-ladhina amanu wa aminu al-salihat. Wa tawasub al-haq wa tawasub al-sabr. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.